Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I am the editorial director of Women's Agenda and the co-founder of Agenda Media, which is the publisher behind Women's Agenda. Uh, we are starting to do a lot more shorter podcasts focusing on issues or interviews during this period. So I'll still be co-hosting with Shivani Gopal and Georgie Dent, but we will have some different guests throughout the week as we try and to do these a little bit more frequently and keep them a little shorter as well. You can catch up on my previous conversation with Georgie regarding the uh, childcare crisis in Australia and also separately with Shivani where we delve into the four-day week in our post-COVID future. But today I am so excited to bring you a conversation with Layla Chalk uh, and it's a conversation on journaling on the fifth trimester, which is something that I hadn't heard of or really thought of before, and the collective grief that many of us have been feeling but really struggling to articulate at the moment. Layla is absolutely amazing. She runs her own law firm and, as you'll hear from this conversation, has a really powerful network and is always giving and giving to help those around her. She's just written an isolation journal aiming to help people with uh, with this period and to really think through and articulate what this period means to them. She wrote the journal to share some of the techniques that she learnt for coping and with um, managing societal grief and other needs when she was growing up in Bosnia in the 1990s living in and uh, later living in a detention camp in northern Croatia. She arrived in Australia as a child with no English and in this conversation she explains how encouragement and support and motivation enabled her to not only make up on the schooling that she lost, but to also excel in her education. So she's now the principal solicitor at law firm 44 Degrees and describes herself as a meddler in that she's passionate about nurturing individuals who are on the verge of achieving their dreams. And you'll hear how that comes through in this conversation. So thank you for joining us once again, and I'll now Go over to my conversation with Layla. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, Layla. So I guess I, I want to get to the first, Australia's first isolation journal in a moment, which I think is a really cool idea. And I want to talk about journaling in general through this time. But first, um, I know that, that you've created this really from your experiences in war-torn Bosnia and time spent in a detention camp in northern Croatia. So that, that's where I wanted to start is, is what, what, what was your story there? How did, how did you get to Australia? So my parents were here on holiday back in the 80s and, um, and I was born. So I had Australian citizenship from birth and they, um, they went on back home and life got a bit complicated. Um, and we spent maybe three years trying to endeavor to, um, to, to exit Bosnia so that we could get to, um, the consulate, um, uh, in Croatia, so eventually we made it to Croatia, and Mum sort of, uh, you know, made her way to the consulate to say, "Well, uh, here's this Australian kid that I've got. Um, can we have a visa, please?" And it was a really interesting experience because they said, "Oh, lovely, we'll have this uh, citizen. We'll have this one. Um, just let us know where you want us to ship her." And Mum kind of went, "Well, what about what about the rest of us?" And they went, "Well, you apply for a visa because you don't have a visa anymore. You had permanent residency, but you walked away from it." Um, back in the day. So, so so that was a really 
a strange experience, I got to say, for the family and, and yeah. obviously also for myself. So we um, lived in a Croatian detention camp um, from sort of late 94 to, um, uh, sorry, early 94 to, to um, around November 95. And then um, and then as everybody else's visa came through um, as a refugee visa to Australia, except of course mine, because I was still a citizen back then. So, um, so, so we then moved here and um, lived in Sydney for a little bit. Okay. Okay. So are you still in Sydney today or, or where are you based now? No, we're in Melbourne now. Um, you know, the weather and, and, and the amenities and everything I think suited us a bit better. So um, we we tried resettling a couple of times and it took, it took a while to get the atmosphere and the feel of it right. Yeah. Um, but we've been in Melbourne since 97. Okay, okay, sure. And so in, um, I mean, 94, 97, you were a, a, a young girl or on the cusp of being a teenager or, or what, what sort of age group were you in at that point? Um, so I was in that sort of a preteen um, age group. I'd um, grown up in Bosnia during the war. So, you know, um, early years of primary school, for example, were completely missed out because um, of, of the, the fighting and the turmoil and the fact that the schools were shut. Um, and then I did a little bit of schooling when I got here um, and a little bit of schooling in the detention camp. But it, it was all very... Um, uh, piecemeal and, and, you know, you move to Australia, but you don't speak any English and they stick you in the classroom and you're trying to figure out what you're doing. Um, so it, it was all sort of added up. And then I turned 13 in Melbourne and started um, high school here properly. So it was that um, preteen stage, the, the, the really wonderful stage for a young woman that I, I think um, that we can all relate to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, we're and we'll get to all this, but because we we obviously there's a lot of people concerned about their kids being out of school at the moment, and um, we also on Women's Agenda definitely have a lot of concerns for girls internationally, particularly in countries where it's already a struggle for girls to get an education if those girls are out of education now due to COVID nineteen. But one thing in your mm-hmm. experience, I mean, it sounds like you were really really able to catch up quite quickly because. You've gone on to have a career in law. So, uh, I mean, obviously you've been able to catch up on that schooling somehow. How, how did that happen for you? I think the most important thing is nurturing the relationship with education and the child. And so to ensure that they don't feel stupid and they don't feel like they don't fit in. Um, and they might not fit in socially, but but at least they should um, – understand that there is the benefit of schooling to them. Um, And I found that was what allowed me to catch up because my relationship with education was always very favorable. Um, My parents were very encouraging of it. um, And the teachers were very encouraging of it because it is really difficult to get a child who has no idea what they're doing and has no idea about um, you know, how to read in English, for example, or how to read at all, or, mm. or how certain things work and, and being encouraging of that child and engaging with them. Um, that makes a really big difference. It made a big difference to me. Um, so that by the time high school rolled around, um, it, it didn't take a lot of extra effort for me to be able to catch up. But it's not just me. It's all the Bosnian children or all the children from the Balkans who have experienced this. Um, and it isn't just lawyers and doctors and, and surgeons and so on that we've got but um, also our tradespeople were able to catch up um, and there were almost always 
you know, likely to be tradespeople because they were always likely to follow the family trade. And when you speak to them, what what you hear from them is the fact that um, inevitably it's that relationship with um with knowledge and with education that's the, the most important. The people that I know that have really really suffered are the ones who um they, they weren't struggling before and they weren't struggling after. Mm. But their relationship with education got damaged, and so then they started missing school continuously. And you know, in my experience, from from the people that I know, that's maybe one in twenty, mm. and it was because of that that relationship being damaged. So they um they didn't like their teachers, they didn't like their school, they didn't like going to school. They um, their parents didn't encourage it. Um, they kept getting into arguments with people. They kept changing schools. Um, that affected them a lot more than I would say that other shared experience of um, of missing uh, extensive schooling, like for example, what happened to me. Yeah, yeah, the relationship with education. That's, I mean, that that's it's amazing to put it that way. And you mentioned encouragement that that really helps and did aid you. Do you recall also having? I mean, was it? Did you recall a strong sense of purpose in terms of education? Um. What really worked for me was um, the drive that you kind of develop when you have been held back in some way. Um, and I think that for a lot of kids, if they understand that there is a goal and there is something that they're catching up with, mm. um, that drive will get them across. Um, but if they believe that that is impossible, that there isn't a thing to catch up, but that they've missed out, that's a really different approach. Mm, okay, okay. You, uh, you've got kids. I don't know how old they are. All I know is that you do have kids. Um, are, are they in school? How have how have you been through this process with them in terms of how you feel about what they've missed out over the last few months? I know that you're based there in Melbourne, so I think some kids yeah. are back in school now, but not all kids. Yeah, no, look, mine is two and a half. So um, okay. you, you'd so think, you, well, okay. what kind of parental pressure for education can you feel at two and a half? until you start getting the following phone calls. And they say things like, uh, has the Child Care Centre engaged with Zoom sessions with Sophia? You're like, I don't know, she's two and a half. I, <laughs> I stopped reading those emails when I pulled her out. Um, and they would, um, so, so in my mother-in-law, for example, in early childhood education, and, and she'd say, well, you know, how do you know she's hitting her milestones? And again, it's like, she's two and a half. <laughs> or what? I, I, I don't care. Um, she's fine. Um, how are you parenting her? I'm like, sometimes I give her to grandma and other times I give her the iPad. Like, she's two and a half. <laughs> um, but, but that she's two and a half, that context works with, well, he's four and he's nine mm. and she's 15 in the sense that, yes, um, we, we should be, um, keeping an eye out on the children. We should be making sure that they're not anxious, that they're not stressed, that they feel safe, that they're dealing with their loneliness in a way that is constructive, that they're embracing their emotions, but not necessarily to say, well, they're going to miss out on the curriculum. Mm. So we've got a lot of um, community, you know, um, people that we engage with and family, friends and so on. And I've just been sending them the young adult fiction books that I used to read at that particular age level. So I'd pop onto Book Depository and I'd send a couple of books off. And I'm like, you know what? If your kid doesn't want to do anything other than read this book, mm. well, let them read the book. Yeah. They'll be fine. Yeah. They'll catch up. Um, so finding things that, that they really like. But I think the most important thing is pushing through the anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's what I want to get to. And I might just start with getting to pushing through the anxiety from from the adult's perspective, um, first of all, because going back to the isolation journal, um, which I've seen that you've uh, you created initially for family and friends, but you are now um, offering it now on your website and you've also donated a large number of these as well. Um, so I know yeah. that you talk about you had this this toolbox that you developed for coping with with the idea of mass trauma, and I think that was back from your experiences in that detention camp. So could you maybe start there in terms of talking about some of the tools that you developed there that you've that you've taken in to to utilize, um, and and why you think they're relevant during the pandemic now? Of course, um, what I started noticing when when we started talking about coronavirus is. As a lawyer, I get a lot of phone calls from a lot of people for a lot of different reasons, obviously. Um, and then the tone of those phone calls changed and it was a matter of continued panicked um, worry, um, you know, and, and the grown men crying on the phone and what am I supposed to do and how can I do this and what do I do? And so obviously when somebody's going through that, we recommend counseling and we recommend therapy and we organize referrals and, and, and so on. Um, but what started happening was that, Nobody, nobody wanted to do that. They just said that they were frozen. They were stuck. They needed um, immediate sort of um, guidance about, well, what should I do tomorrow? And so we responded to that very quickly with, how do you run your business online? How do you um, do a virtual team? And then there was this um, missing gap of, okay, but how do you person? How do you actually uh, live as a as a person during this? kind of mass grieving process where everyone is looking at their life and then looking at society and saying, well, how can any of this continue? Um, and so I looked at all those questions that were that, that were being discussed and put to people and I would say things like, Well, why don't you write it down? Or why don't why don't we why don't we talk about this? Why don't we discuss this issue? And um and then the, the feedback that I was getting back from some of my colleagues and friends were, well you know, I'm staring at a blank page, Layla. And so one night I couldn't sleep and I thought, well, I would find this helpful. So instead I decided um, that it would be a good idea to um, to prepare something so that we could all utilize it. And um, and, and and that's really been the purpose behind it. Um, my experience during the war was that if you couldn't write, that you should draw your feelings. Mm-hmm. And if you couldn't... Um, if you couldn't engage with your feeling, you you should engage the creative side of your mind. And if you couldn't find anything creative that you should do, you should then do something repetitive, like um, let's say calligraphy or coloring in or knitting or, or something, whatever's available to you, because those tend to be very soothing properties. And so those are the the things. Um, I know that my whole childhood, I knew that there was something really stressful happening with the adults when I'd walk into the living room and I'd find my mother crocheting. Because once she's gotten the crochet needles out, something's going down. And you don't know what it is because she hasn't um, engaged with it yet. She's still trying to process it. But that was that was how that um, creative process would, um, would begin. And so I thought, well, okay, how do I encourage people to do all of these things? Um, at, at the moment, there was a really big focus on everything being shifted online. And then I thought, well, I think we need to do it the other way around. Mm. I think it needs to be not online because we're constantly online interrupted. Um, but if you're engaging with your feelings and your emotions, you need to be off the internet. So that's why the journal was, in fact, physical and tangible and, and, and something you could write in. Mm. 
what are like I mean, when you say prompts, like what sorts of prompts would there be there? Is it is it like an idea of you might have a little something there each day, like a half sentence or something that might kind of encourage you to to get writing and to get creative? So there's three types of ways you can engage with the journal. The first one is a series of questions that are say things like, um, what is happening in your favorite place in the world? Um, so it allows you to sort of reflect on a global outlook. Um, what is um, what are particular regulations in uh, or, you know around where you live and, and, and how does that affect you? Um, what are the reasons as to why you are isolating? Um, uh, that sort of thing. And then there's some more, uh, and they're very open ended, and they allow you to sort of write for a couple of pages about what you're experiencing. Um, then the other ones are called sort of quick check-ins. So basically it would ask you a series of really quick questions and you could sort of maybe put one, one and a half sentences in there about things like, um, you know, what happened this morning? What did you eat today? What's something that you've done this afternoon? Um, what's happening on TV right now? What clothing is comfortable? That, that, that sort of thing. And it sounds really inane. It sounds really stupid. But if you can think about a really particularly stressful day you had, and then the last task for the day was to describe your breakfast and then you go to sleep. That's such a good powering down process. And so the idea about these um, sort of quick check-ins was to really help people sort of put a, put a pause or a breath into their day so you feel like you've done something productive, but also you haven't done anything too emotionally draining. And then the last um, type of um, prompt that's in there are little coloring in prompts, for example, or a prompt to do something creative and then take a picture online to maybe draft a blog post. There's a really funny creative writing one that says, you know, which dinosaur would do the very best in isolation. Um, and we've had some really interesting responses <laughs> on Instagram. Um, so it, there is just different ways of engaging with it. And so it can be really fun for a young person, but then it can also be um, very worthwhile for somebody who's got that sort of grown-up ability for introspection, but none of it is melancholy on purpose because I think often when, um, as adults, we're being invited to write about our experiences, we're almost expected to be sitting there describing, uh, you know, a greatest breakdown. And then it isn't necessarily supposed to encourage that. It's supposed to encourage you to um, look for everyday things, joyful things, happy things, and just kind of process through the day-to-day as opposed to an overall um, war and peace on, you know, emotional connectivity or, or, or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, journaling is, I mean, it is a thing where it is really about you do find those little bits of gratitude, really, the things that you're that you really appreciate. And I know that I, I mean, I don't journal in any kind of formal way, but I do try to, um, I always keep something on my bedside table and I do try to document each day. And I know that feeling of seeing a blank page and sometimes it can be really difficult, but in my head, I, I do, it's only one page. And even if I'm writing bullet points about what happened today, that is enough for me. And sometimes it might go into something a little bit long running in terms of how I'm feeling or what I'd like to improve or, um, what I'm thinking about my business or what's going on with my kids or whatever it is. I really like the idea of the prompts. I, I just think that 
especially for people who've, who may have never journaled before or maybe for people who only journal during this experience because this experience, it is also a time that you might want to document. It's such a, a strange, bizarre period and, it, you know, life won't return to normal but, I mean, we won't be in this period forever and I think yeah. it's an interesting time to try and make a record of, particularly um, – for your kids or maybe even to show your grandkids or, or somebody later on to say, hey, this is what it was like. We were living through this major historic period along with everyone else Absolutely. around the world. Mm. And, and that's the thing. We look at moments in history and we say, oh, well, this is what's happened for this person um, and, and that must be what, what happened throughout all of society. But that's because those pieces of recollection survived um, mm. and, and we're hoping that, that these experiences will obviously survive um, as well, and that people are, if they're writing them down in a book, they're, they're more likely to keep them than um, than if, if, let's say, they're written on the back of napkins. Although I did all my business planning when I opened my law firm at the back of a napkin, and um, and that worked out really well. So, you know, absolutely can be done. But um, I had a great, great um, story that I'd, I'd been sent where a parent had bought one for each of their children, um, and for themselves and their spouse as well. But for one for each of their children, she said, when this is finished, I'm going to put this with their baby books mm. because I think that this has been the most unique experience of having children since, um, since, you know, those first three months of when I brought them home, um, because it was so different to the way that they had the rest of their lives organized. And that's where that idea of the fifth trimester came from. That we weren't trying to, um, let's say, educate our children at the moment in homeschool and this and that, but, but instead, all we really try to do is keep them alive during this period, keep them safe, nurture them, feed them, you know, nurture their souls, um, and give them opportunities to be creative without putting all that pressure on um, formal systems of education um, that at the moment is unnecessary. Yeah. So, so the fifth trimester. So. Talk me through that. That I where, where did that terminology come from? You, you've kind of described it there, I know. But um, so we often think about the fourth <laughs> trimester being that period when you're at home with a newborn and you're still in the first three months or so of the baby's life and exactly very much tra- attached to you still. The fifth yeah, trimester, so yeah, yeah. So the fourth trimester, we, we've all heard of it. It's this mm. idea, like you said, that you've come home with a baby that um, that that effectively can't still be in the stomach but isn't developed enough to literally do anything Mm. Um, and very similarly to that you you spend three months carrying them feeding them trying to deal with the fact that they only sleep for you know 17 seconds at a time or or Mm -hmm. something ridiculous and when we look at the toll that that takes on the on the mother or the father or the parents or the entire household it's extraordinary like the amount of sleep that you lose the amount of stress that you go under but we all understand that the, 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 that fourth trimester will end just the way the previous trimesters mm. will end and the children will grow through that. Um, and I realized that this new stage, this new coronavirus mass isolation situation was effectively a repetition of that. Mm. And so then it was really important to, to get the parents to understand, um, you know, the parents that I was talking to, to understand that, that realistically, all they got to do is travel through another trimester. And it seems unfair because for some of us, we just finished the fourth trimester. Um, 
And and for other parents, it's you know they've got six year olds or twelve year olds, and and it's really hard to just basically let them stay home, feed them, get them to sleep, and then let them stay home and entertain them and then feed them and get them to sleep because you feel like you're failing them. You feel like you should be giving them productive things to do. Um, but that's almost impossible in a highly anxious environment, that, um, especially for the people who have suffered such financial loss um, during this time. The last thing that they need to be doing is experiencing the stress of how am I going to educate my child during mm-hmm. this? Period. Yeah. And so, so we started using that, or I started using that term and sharing my story about war in Bosnia because I thought it was really important that people do realize that, um, that the children are incredibly resilient and that as long as we nurture their um, emotional needs during this period, um, that they would be able to bounce back relatively quickly for uh, their academic needs in the future. Yeah. So... As you were talking, um, I, I, I want to know how you're coping because it sounds like, I mean, you're running a business. You're, you're obviously going through this fifth trimester yourself. Um, you've managed to put this book together and it sounds like you're also somebody who's out there helping and constantly talking to family members, to colleagues, to people probably in your own firm, to to clients as well. How are, are you managing all of this? Well, I said this to a colleague the other day um, and to my sister-in-law and maybe like eight other people. This has probably been the, the most stressful time of my life and it's certainly been the the worst my mental health has ever been. And I think that most people are experiencing that. Um, the most important thing in those circumstances is to really acknowledge that this has been a really difficult time. I am really stressed right now. And then forgive yourself for that experience. Um, and, and for that position, and then also forgive others for it. And so I have um, engaged with wellness, with um, you know, from a leadership perspective, with my team. Um, I have sort of looked at and invited everyone to engage with because uh, we usually have like a wellness budget um, per staff member to kind of say, well, do you need this or do you need this, um, and sort of say, well, instead of the usual, you know, um, massages and Pilates and all of those things that we usually tend to get for people, then you know, w- would a telehealth appointment um, be more beneficial? Or you know, one of my staff said, oh, I'll have a journal. Um, but things like, um, do you need some time off? Do you need this? Do you need that? And and you do that on a on a company basis, but then you need to do that on a personal basis as well. Um, and I think the best way that the, what what tells me is people honestly saying, "Look, I've got nothing new to share. I'm just calling you, so I don't want to feel alone," and vice versa. And and we've mm. all been doing that. Um, and so then we've all been kind of really honest with each other that there is this communal sense of grief. Um, and, and it's led me to be really honest with people and say, like, uh, coping? Yes, I'm absolutely coping. Is it really difficult? Yes, it has been really very, very hard. And I think everyone we talk to is pretty much on the same boat. Mm, mm, yes, absolutely, which is the, the collective sense of grief. It really is. Um, I mean, how, it, how are you holding up? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, I feel like it's been so busy that that almost has gotten me through, but I do feel that sadness. I, I can't describe it. And it's, it's, I mean, I, I've got three kids, um, and they've been in and out. One's finally back at school this week. One's been back at preschool a few weeks. And then there's a toddler who was due to start preschool, but hasn't yet. But, um, so 
it's busy constantly and there's been some little silver linings to that that we've, you know, we discover little parts of the backyard and things that we may never have done if we didn't have this time previously, you know, skateboarding on the front driveway and just stupid things like that that have been actually interesting and um, and, and nice time to spend with each other rather than just rushing about constantly. Um, but there's, I, I can't describe the little pinges of sadness. Like I get it through, um, I mean, I was just at the shops earlier at the supermarket and as I walked through uh, the shopping mall there and just still seeing the taped up seats and some clo- and the stores still closed and you see the signs and it's just a weird thing. I sit there and I think this, like I could never have imagined, you know, the first few days of 2020 that this is what, I, that I'd be reading these sorts of signs that, You'd be seeing the thing about social distancing, which all makes so much sense to us now, but how we could have ever imagined that as part of our world, say this time last year, it, it just wasn't there. And so you can't help but feel this longing for, for, for snapping back to that normal, which we know we can't snap back, that it is going to be a process ahead. And also that guilt as well that here in Australia, we are so incredibly lucky with the health system that we have and how we've been able to get it under control and I keep looking at the figures overseas and I keep thinking of friends and family overseas and it does, it, it, it's so hard to watch and I do feel a sense of guilt about that too. Yeah, and, and those are all of the things that you're experiencing now and then that experience continues and um, a lot of survivor's guilt also kicks in because if you're not in an industry that's been decimated, um, you may not notice the financial flow on of, of what's happened um, until you do. Mm-hmm. And, and it might not be a personal experience, but you'll see somebody or, you, or something will happen. And then that really deep guilt gets to you. Um, and that was our experience with the war as well. Um, so you'll, you'll go and you'll visit at home or you'll, um, you'll speak to a family member, but that relationship is forever um, now dressed um, in this, added layer of complexity of, well, I got out and you didn't, or, you know, we, we, our family members survived and yours didn't. Um, and it, it affects everything forever. Um, and I don't want to sound um, really melancholy because life is beautiful and, and people are, and I say this a thousand times over, people are resilient and um, and we sort of come back from this really well, um, just like we did from, you know, previous um, losses that we've experienced as a community, but at the end of the day, um, the, the aftershocks I think are going to continue for a long time. Mm, yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It has been amazing, and I will never think about journaling the same way again. And I can't wait to to get my hands on one of yours. And we'll make sure that um, our readers and um, our listeners will will absolutely have access to to know where they can go and take a look th- look at that and purchase it. Um, I, I might just ask one final thing that came up that I was just really curious about was um, the, the mod market. The, the mod market? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah. tell me about that. I, I mean, again, this whole conversation that I'm just hearing about, it just sounds like you have an amazing network of people around you that you are clearly really giving and giving and giving to. So, uh, and that sounds like that is about bringing women together. What, what, is, what is that about? What are, the, what are some of the things that you're doing around bringing women together? So one of the most um, incredible women that I have the honour of knowing, her name is Zofia Tufa. And um, she uh, started off with a hijabi stylist um, brand and then started running the Mod Market, which is 
um, a modesty market. It's a market for um, modesty fashion. Quite often that, that tends to translate to um, women who wear the jump, but, but also not. Um, it's a really big thing in the U.S. And then in Australia, it was a, a part of the fashion industry that I think just wasn't being targeted at all mm. um, until, uh, you know, Zofia started doing what she was doing. So um, in, in the first couple of times around this event, it was, you know, a couple of thousand people. And I got involved because um, they needed someone to come in and stand in and do some um, modeling from a plus size perspective. And I was like, yeah, sure, how did it help? Um, because I like to meddle. Um <laughs> And then many, you know, a couple of years later, I, I contacted her and, and sort of said, um, are you looking at making this a, a more um, bigger experience and, and what are your goals and, and, you know, can we help you from a legal perspective? Because one of the things that we're able to do is is really nurture a business um, and and help startups or, or businesses that are leveling up and, and sort of engage with all of those structures and, and so on. And so because I do this professionally, I'm able to then from time to time also do it from a mentoring perspective, um, especially if it's a, we call it a client with a cause. Mm. Um, so this last year, um, the modesty market was, I think, the biggest it ever was. It was a partner of um, the Melbourne Fashion Week. Um, so we had thousands of people in attendance. Um, and that year we decided to actually sponsor the event as well. Um, so not just sort of uh, help out and, and review documents and, and do all that legal stuff, but actually um, physically sponsor the event, which then um, was really wonderful because it gave us an opportunity to talk to people and engage with different things. And we um, we had a, a panel discussion with some amazing um, both fashion but also spoken word artists and, and bringing that sort of environment together Um and it, it was a really interesting experience because my family was in attendance and about halfway through me talking, my then one and a half year old mm. starts screaming, mama, mama, mama. And I felt wonderful because I was in a safe space where I could just invite her up on stage with me, mm. um, where I knew that I wasn't being judged for um, having a kid who won't shut up and who <laughs> wants to come and sit with mama. Um, and, and it was really wonderful. And, and I thought, I want every woman who's ever up on stage um, to, to feel this way that she can just pick her kid if she chooses to have one. Uh, pick her kid out of the um, uh, out of the mass of people there vying for her attention, plop them in her lap, and then continue on with business. And so there's a picture of that, um, which was one of my most amazing experiences. But the modesty market was um, a, a different thing for everyone. It gave a lot of different um, women the ability to bring their business out into um, in, into a crowd and, and, and show it off. Um, also engage with um, different sort of financial aspects of um, you know how do you run a how do you run a store? How do you engage in a big event? Um, what sort of mentoring and growth does your business require? How do you level up? And the organisers of Modesty Market had a lot of that support. For all of the um, for all of the vendors, so I was actually just a little bit sad that we don't get to do it this year. Mm. As far as I uh, I know, um, I haven't spoken to anybody about this, but as far as I know, I think coronavirus has affected that timetable as well. Um, but they're um, they're such a wonderful bunch of people, and that's where I met the photographers that I work with, and that's where I met um, a lot of the other business people that I work with, and it was also a really good way of inviting partners um 
sort of like corporate partners to an event that wasn't your usual um, drinks and canapes at a sports club sort yeah. of experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not 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 your box at the um, state of origin or something. So exactly, you, you want to have the different options. Of- yeah. Mm. But we're not that kind of business, so we're not, never likely to, you know, host that kind of event. It was really good to be able to find a different kind of event, and our partners really loved it as well. Like our business partners um, who got invited, they thought it was the best thing around too. So that worked out. Yeah, great. Okay, well, we'll make sure we include some some links to that as well. So thank you so much Wonderful. for your time. It's a fascinating conversation. So thank you. Absolute pleasure. Let me know if you need. Um, Um, any more details on anything. Um, But, yeah, I just really enjoy the chat. All right. Thank you, Layla. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, thank you, Layla, for that absolutely incredible conversation. You can go to laylachalk.com to find out more about her, including some of the different books that she's written. And I didn't actually delve into the others, but she has got um, a link there to purchase that journal. And you can also see one that she's written on uh, the art of Bosnia on the lost art rather of Bosnian cooking and a few other bits and pieces on there that look really really interesting you'll also find Layla on Instagram just a reminder that all the issues and stories we discuss on women's agenda you'll find in some shape and in some form on our website the best way to stay up to date is to subscribe to our daily newsletter which you'll also find uh, where to subscribe on our website we've just launched a member platform where you can support our push for female-led journalism while also supporting your own career. It's called Women's Agenda Extra and you'll find it at womensagenda.com.au forward slash extra. One final thing, if you did enjoy this podcast, we are really trying to grow it. And um, so the best way to do that is to get uh, people leaving reviews and hopefully some five-star reviews. So if you made it this far, I think you like it. So if you could do that, that would be fantastic. Until next time.